All right. So this morning we're going to start off with, with something that has really been on my heart with what's going on in the world around us, and that's this. Every single one of us will face adversity. No matter, what you, no matter who you are, no matter what stage of life you're in, you're going to face difficult situations. Many of us have had to overcome difficult situations, and it's in the overcoming that our skin has gotten thicker and our understanding has gotten stronger to know just how great and good the Lord is. But every time adversity comes, it has a purpose. Now, the enemy's purpose for adversity is to get you to shrink back and feel cornered and to feel like you are in the straits. You know what the word straits means? It means a very narrow, hemmed-in place. Or it means feeling cornered. And you have no way out, and you don't know how to fight, or you don't know who to turn to. And then when you do fight, you'll, do what, you'll fight any way that you know, you know how. And many times that fight is in our own strength. Many times that fight is through shame or hiding and numbing out to drugs and alcohol or, you know, whatever it is. There's a lot of different ways that we'll fight when we feel cornered. The enemy wants us to be cornered. He brings extreme hardships and opposition. He does all he can to make you feel weak and small and seemingly insignificant. Now, the, the battle of adversity is every day. I call it the... The, uh, the battle is at hand, or the day of battle. Now, the day of battle is going to grow stronger and bigger, and what the church is going to face in our society and around the world, the Bible promises persecution, hardship, opposition, difficulty, slander, lies, deception, and there's a real enemy that wants to destroy us now. So every day we have to stand against those lies. The enemy, the devil, does not have a part-time job. He works on overtime. He doesn't drive by your house every few weeks and say, oh, I think I'll attack you today or lie to you. But God has given us a greater strategy, and in the kingdom, there's no yin-yang theology. Good and, and evil are not equal. Light and dark are not equal. Light is, is way more powerful than darkness. And in the midst of that adversity and that hardship, if we respond right, we'll actually grow stronger. If we can see that Jesus is closer in our darkest hour, we'll experience his deliverance, and then that'll make us stronger for the next one that comes. And I'm bold and confident and more in love today because I've survived a lot of tsunamis and a lot of waves and a lot of hurricanes and a lot of loss and hardship. But what it's done is it's made me more in love with the Lord. But the enemy wants you to shrink back and then to think that God doesn't care, he doesn't love you, or to retreat or to be small or to relax and rest or to be less intense. That's why I make it a point to be extra intense, because I know that the enemy's strategy is to dumb us down and to dull us down and to make us ineffective and weak and for us to be nice Christians. But the Lord doesn't want nice Christians. It doesn't mean I'm not nice to people, but nice is often pretentious and a lie. God wants you to be kind, and we treat people with kindness, but he wants us to be aggressive. Nice will cause you to be a man pleaser. Kind will cause you to reflect Jesus in a loving way and serve people. But in niceness, we're afraid of being offensive. We sure don't want somebody to talk about us and slander us. And it never feels good when somebody, you know, calls you crazy and persecutes you. And I have news for you. If you are going to live on fire for Jesus, you will be persecuted. The enemy will do all he can to keep you back and to shrink you down. And instead of being a flamed on bonfire, he wants you to be a smoldering wick. He wants you to just smolder, not be blazing on fire. 
Now, to back up my point today, we're going to start with Proverbs 24.10. I love this scripture a lot. And this is uh, one of many scriptures that ties into this theme. But we're going to talk about this one today. This will be the premise of where we're going. It's Proverbs 24.10. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Your strength is small. The word adversity means tribulation, anguish, trouble, distress, hostility, or to be in dire straits. It's a time or place in your life characterized by extreme difficulty and an intense degree of oppression. And the purpose of it is to keep you from advancing. The purpose of it is to keep you from growing stronger. The purpose of it is to keep you back from doing what God's called you to do. But the reality of it is, is every single one of us will face adversity. And if you don't know how to handle adversity when it comes, you'll become small, depressed, turn to other things for comfort. You'll, you'll think that God's forsaken you and you'll believe lies from the enemy and about yourself. Adversity literally means extreme opposition from an enemy that hates you. Revelations 12.10 says that the enemy seeks to accuse us night and day. The brethren, not the world, the brethren, the saints. So if you call yourself a Christian and you lay, lay claim to following Jesus, then first you need to understand you have a full-grown Jesus inside of you and you have everything that you need to be successful. So the devil through lies and deception and accusation and shame and getting you to seek the accolades of men and be a man pleaser and then cave when somebody slanders or talks about you or, or says, oh, you go to that church. Oh, you pray in tongues. You are crazy. That's, you go to that cult church or you're acting weird and that's not for today and, and all those other things that try to hold you back from being flamed on and on fire. You don't have to be so intense. Why do you have to worship like that? Why do they raise their hands? Why do you have to shout? Why can't we just be calm, cool, and collected? And what you have to know and understand is that adversity is designed for a purpose. Because you understand the Lord in the overcoming. You know the greatness of who God is by his delivering power. And so as we go through crises and hardships and difficulties and oppression and lies and deception, the Lord is closer because he's going to show you how great he really is. And the devil all the time works to lie and keep you in oppression and think that God's far away. And God didn't really say, because the devil always wants to put a question mark where God has put a period. Did God really say, question mark. But for us, the answer is yes, God really said, period. And that gives us hope, confidence, strength, and security to advance and to do what God's called us to do. So adversity will happen. But what shouldn't happen is you growing faint. Let's talk about growing faint. To faint means to sink down. It means to let drop or to drop the ball. Or to give up, forsake, abandon, and withdraw from the battle. It's too intense. This is too hard. I can't handle it. Hence, crack another one open, toke another one, check out on Netflix, movies, fall into depression, anxiety, pornography, whatever it is. We run to all of those things because we've grown faint in the midst of adversity. To faint also means to abate. 
You know what it means to abate? To abate means to become less intense. To abate means to shrink back or to stop. And the enemy doesn't want you intense because if you're full of fire and power, you will reproduce and advance and everything you do will produce wealth. He doesn't want you wealthy. So when we talk about strength here in a moment, it literally means to be wealthy, but not wealthy in the sense of just money, though that can be a part of it. Real wealth is not true, you know, worldly riches. Real wealth is wisdom, knowledge, understanding, because the Bible says it's more precious than silver and gold. Where are the men and, wisdom, men and women of wisdom and understanding and power? Because I know people that have lots of money that are in deep depression and anxiety and fear and their strength is small. Because money doesn't make you strong. So to faint means to abate. It means that I am in extreme adversity and opposition. It means that hardships all around and, and maybe I'm the one that put myself there, but there's still hardship around. And so I grow faint in the sense that I become disheartened. I lose heart. It's really more like hopelessness. To grow faint means that I don't have hope anymore. And it means that I feel like giving up. It means that I have come to this place of, I just want to throw in the towel. That's the word falter. You know what the word falter means? To falter means to lose heart and to lose your momentum and to become unsteady and to lose your confidence. That's why I'm a confidence builder. So what I see in you is not what the world defines you as or what you think of yourself. If you could see what I see. Because I look at God's people through, God, through his eyes. Yeah. And many of us see ourselves as weak, insignificant. We become nice Christians and we do our church duty. And we go through the programs and we feel like that pleases God and it doesn't. What pleases God is staying connected to the vine and your identity of who you are as sons and daughters. And then becoming and doing everything that he did. And so to faint means that I abate or I falter in the midst of incredible storms. Strength is power, might, and it's the ability to reproduce and to, to bring, a for, bring forth results. That's what wealthy is. And it means I'm forceful and I'm strong in how I do it. Yes, I'm kind and I'm gentle because that's the way Jesus was and I'm humble but I also have an incredible confidence because of who he is. It's not in my own strength. It's in his strength. But to think yourself as small is to see yourself like a grasshopper. And to think that the enemy sees you as a grasshopper and is going to crush you. To see yourself as small means that I'm in deep distress. I have nowhere to turn. I have no one to look to. And I'm all alone. And what I want you to know is that's a deceptive lie. There's an enemy that always wants you to faint, falter, and become abated. Satan wants you less intense and to not advance aggressively. He wants you to be reduced to ashes so that you see yourself as small, weak, and seemingly insignificant. The enemy is hostile towards us every single day. And he wants you to faint. He wants you to lose heart. He wants you to ultimately abandon, forsake, and withdraw from the battle that's at hand or just be less intense. We don't need all that shouting and prophetic worship and 
signs and wonders and miracles and fire and praying in tongues and casting out demons? Why can't we just be comfortable and nice Christians and just do our, you know, nice Christian duty on a daily basis and serve more and work more and then God will be pleased with us. And that's not how it works. We don't need more programs, more systems, more institutions. We don't need more people telling us who we're not. Instead, we need Jesus telling us who we are and to be flamed onto the more he's got for us. And that only comes from being aggressive and going after it because every day I have an opportunity to lose heart. Money, family, children, sickness, struggles, challenges, relationships, marriage, job, employees, work, all of that stuff wants to get me to lose heart. But if I don't have my eyes on the prize of what really matters, I will. That's why I understand that my job and my careers and my education, that's not what defines me or makes me. Your social status, your skin, skin color, your bank accounts, your history, your past, none of that defines you. Even your present circumstance does not define you. And what God wants is a resilient church that's on fire, that's aggressive. He wants an army, not an audience. Yeah. I'm glad you're here, but we don't get any extra accolades just because we went to church. We didn't fulfill a duty. We, our conscience shouldn't feel better because it's not about that. Because then if you don't, you'll feel less than, and then you're going to feel like you're not measuring up. And God's mad at you because you missed church last week. And, oh, you didn't come on Wednesday night, and you didn't do what you were supposed to do. And now you feel less than. But when you do the things that you think you're supposed to, you feel better than. And that's religious duty, and it's dysfunctional, and it's religion at its finest that causes you to perform and measure up. And then when adversity comes, we feel less than because, oh, I have... I'm not where I'm supposed to be. And then I say to people all the time, well, where are you supposed to be? Well, I don't read my Bible enough. Well, how much should you read your Bible? Well, I don't pray enough. Well, how much should you pray? Because the truth is you'll never do it enough. And your value wasn't based on you doing it enough. It was based on who you are. This is identity in its finest. So the reason why I'm strong is because of who I am. When I know confidently who he is as a father that loves me, I walk confidently as the son in my identity. But if you falter in the day of adversity, your strength is small. So what will so happen is God will continue to bring adversity to your life until you finally get it. At some point, you get it. I've been lied about. I can tell you stories of people that have called me names, slandered me. I've been told recently that somebody wants to take me down and... They did, you know, they've, they've done research about my past and I'm lying and all this other kind of stuff and that I used to human traffic girls and that I uh, 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 laundered money and they did an FBI background check and, you know, they're going to take me down because this church steals people and people just get sideways and goofy about all kinds of things. But I've been through enough to say that when that came that way, I prayed for that person and said, God, show him the greatness of your love and who you are. And every tongue that rises up against me in judgment, he will condemn. So I don't have to condemn it. So I don't have to on Facebook, make the phone call, get to, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. Because I don't have small strength. In fact, small strength is when you have to be narcissist, be a narcissist, and defend yourself and protect yourself and fight for yourself and fight. And you think you're the one that has to fight for God. <laughs> really? He fights for me. So adversity, hardship, extreme opposition, it comes, but it has a purpose in your weakness. His strength is made perfect. 
Here's what that means. It doesn't mean he just comes to rescue you and you go, oh, God, man, your strength is perfect. That's part of it. Here's the better way to say it. My weakness reveals the greatness of who he is. My vulnerability, my brokenness, my imperfections. But see, we want to have it all together and be perfect and look good and sound good and act good. And then we'd be pretentious. And the truth is, is the sacrifices of the Lord are a broken heart and a contrite spirit, Psalm 51. The way this should mean is that in the day of adversity, I grow stronger and my strength becomes greater because of who he is in me. That's the way it should read. But the enemy's plan is to get you to lose heart and abandon and forsake and withdraw and give up. This is too hard. This is too tough. And my flesh is crying out and I just want comfort. I just want to feel good and I just can't handle it anymore. So then we numb out and then we check out. But God says that my strength is made perfect. So that requires you to lean on his strength and you feel his comfort and his life. And you feel him alive inside of you and he gives you the ability to overcome. Losing strength and keeping us powerless through adversity is the enemy's strategy. But the purpose is to get you to not reproduce. Just be a nice Christian. You can be on the team, just sit on the bench. Suit up, put the pads on. Congratulations, you're on the team. But you don't get to play. Which in turn keeps you ineffective. And the enemy wants you ineffective. Just be a nice suburbia Christian and go through your motions and chase after money and careers and make sure it's all about your kids first. And I love my kids, and I love my family, and I won't sacrifice them on the altar of ministry. But what I also understand is there's a much greater purpose, and if I make it all about my kids, they'll become selfish. It'll be all about them. They'll feel entitled, and then they'll live a life of dysfunction, of whining and crying with a silver spoon in their mouth all their life. And some of us were raised that way. The kingdom is violent, and the violent take it by force. You see, people are dying and children are suffering. They don't have the privileges that so many of us have and get to experience. This is a fatherless generation, and it's been that way for many generations. That's why the Lord identifies himself as a father, but in his heart is equal man and woman. Because he created us in his likeness, man and woman. He created them in his likeness. But he refers to himself primarily of the nature of a father. Because there's something powerful about a dad. That's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, he makes this powerful statement. He says, I'm not telling you these things to shame you, but I write them to warn you. Though you may have 10,000 instructors, you you don't have many fathers. Therefore... Everybody say, therefore, imitate me. Now, that would be pretty arrogant to say, hey, do what I do. Imitate my life. But Paul said it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. He said, imitate me as I imitate who? So if we have Christ imitators, I'm not, not saying imitation. 
The word means to be like and to adhere and to be an apprentice and to follow and to learn and discover without losing your unique identity. Because what we don't need is a bunch of robots conforming to uniformity, which is what religion does. Religion says be uniform, but the kingdom says be united. And only the Holy Spirit can unite us in our differences. Can you imagine the doctrinal differences in this room or those listening online right now? And can you imagine if I had to sit down with every one of you and do an interview and make sure that you fully line up with every single thing that I believe? And if you don't, we can't be united. That's dysfunctional. That's why I can sit with Baptist, Lutheran, Methodist, Church of Christ pastors. I don't care who they are. And love them because we have the most important thing in common. And not try to convert them because love has no hooks. I just be me. And I burn bright. And so if you just get around me, my hope and pr- my prayer is that you'll, it'll be contagious and you'll catch on fire. That's the way fire works. Just get around somebody on fire. But I don't judge them and think, well, they're less on fire because they're not baptized in the Holy Spirit. They don't know what I know. And they may be cessationists and they're not as good as I am. And God says, love them right where they're at. Because the only way that you're going to be united is through love. Right. Instead of being a God cop and then having to be divided because of doctrine. And he says, real communion is not factional and it's not divisional and it's not about recognition. First Corinthians chapter 11. It's common union. It means that I love you for who you are and it's real agape love it means I'll lay my life down for you whether you sing good or whether you can run a camera good or whether you can do hospitality good or how well you can serve. It means I love you for who you are right where you're at right now. Where are the imitators? Where are those that can be imitated? Because we all are doing our own thing and that's never going to work. And if you want to see fire and power and love and the supernatural presence of God, then we need each other and we need to get unified. Because we can't do it alone. That's why there's an army. That's why there's a tribe. And that's why you find your family and that's why you don't get to pick your church. And if I'm too aggressive and we're too loud and the worship's not your thing and your style and your preference, you still pray about it because you don't get to pick your church. And it takes all the pressure off me. So when people walk up to me at mayor's prayer breakfast and at other luncheons and another place and say, oh, I visited your church. I don't have to say, well, I hope, you know, I hope it was really good and that you come back. Instead, I say, well, make sure you're spirit-led because you don't get to pick your church. And people don't like that because we, we love to church shop, church hop, like restaurants. But I didn't get to pick my mom and dad, and I realized I get the choice in a sense of how I live my life. But when you become spirit-led, it doesn't become your choice anymore. That's what sovereignty is. You say, well, God's in control. Not if I'm not spirit-led. He's not. Who's really at the wheel? Because I used to have this bumper sticker, Jesus is my co-pilot. It actually said in reggae colors, Ja is my co-pilot. With my little red Volkswagen Golf. I was cool back in 1994. But he's not my co-pilot. He's my pilot. The enemy wants you to lose strength. And he does not want you to fulfill God's call for your life. 
And he wants you cornered and in dire straits, having nowhere to turn and feeling like you can't go anywhere and you're stuck. Have any of you ever felt stuck? Have any of you ever felt like, I just want to give up? Have ever, any of you ever felt like it's just too hard and I can't go on? Well, what God will do is he'll love you right through that. You'll overcome it together with him, and then you'll have another experience just like that. Until finally you realize that I'm not going to die, and God will see me through, and I'll actually get a little bit stronger from it. And then I realize, oh, wait, adversity, hardship, and extreme difficulty? Jesus is right with me. Lord, where are you at? I'm trusting you, and I'm going to build a testimony. So now you build testimony. Adversity means testimony in my life. Hardship just means, oh, well, then God's going to be great, magnified even greater. Yeah. Not woe is me, little old weak, sissified Christian, right. passive, oh, I'm, not gonna, you know, I'm never going to make it, and God doesn't care. No, instead, he loves you to no end. You are a son and a daughter. You have a full-grown Jesus inside of you, and he's ever-present in the help of the time of need, and he'll never forsake you or leave you ever. means ever, never, never. He's never going to leave me, and he's a good father, and he's not up there putting sickness on me and beating me down. He does give me spiritual spanking sometimes because I got sideways, but he does it with mercy and love and grace and tenderness because mercy triumphs over judgment. So if I would just check myself now, 1 Corinthians 11, and judge myself now and say, man, I'm jacked up, messed up, and I got issues, and I've been believing lies and anxiety and worry, doubt, depression. I haven't believed the truth. Lord, I just run to you, and I self-deprecate now. Whatever it is that's in me, I don't want it. Check my heart. Cut me open. Search me. Know me. Take your spotlight like a surgeon light coming down on top of me and open me up and cut out any darkness and lies and deception in me. I'll become stronger. That's how that works. Because you don't have to measure up for anybody. If you're having marriage problems, about 10 out of 10 times, it's just between the two of you. But you're, you're pretending and, def- and defending yourself because you're worried what other people are going to think about your marriage problems. Instead, I just self-deprecate with that too. No one makes me as mad as my wife. And I guarantee you no one makes her as mad as me. But I don't love anybody more than her. And no matter how hard it gets in my personal life, in this church, or in the world around me, the darker it becomes, the brighter you shine. Because you are not of this world. Deep distress comes from the cares of this life. That's where it really comes from. And the enemy will do all that he can to keep you in bondage to this life, to what you see on a daily basis. Here's the way I say it. Love it, lose it. Hate it, find it. Let's say that together. Love it, lose it. Hate it, find it. That's what Jesus said. If you love your life in this world, you're going to lose it. But if you hate your life, which means I have to, nothing to protect. I don't have to defend. Now, I do defend the voiceless and the injustice, but when it comes to myself, right. I'm not self-preserving myself. Because right. it's easy to want to fight your own battle. But we fight our battles much differently in the kingdom. We fight through worship, love, surrender, brokenness, Forsaking all and taking up your cross. 
Your life's not your own, so just die a little bit more. And the harder it gets, and you feel like, Lord, how much more can I die? And he says, with a smile, you can die just a little bit more. <laughs> yes. You can die just a little bit more. Oh, but I've died enough. Really? Can you imagine Jesus carrying up, you know, the cross, beat, broke down? I said, Lord, enough's enough. Enough's enough. And the Lord says, you can go a little bit further. I believe that one of the greatest things that will cause you to faint and lose heart is what you see. That's why in Isaiah 11, it says that Jesus will not judge by what he sees, nor will he make decisions based on what he hears. So when Jesus cried out, let him who has ears to hear, hear. Let him who has eyes to see, see. What he was saying was there's a spiritual sight and a spiritual hearing beyond the natural realm. So the opposite of faith is what you see. Because the minute you see turmoil or hear adversity from the news, politically, White House, whatever it is, your house, fight it, whatever your circumstance is, if you aren't seeing and hearing with your spiritual eyes, you will faint and lose heart. But if you learn to see God's way, and be spirit-led in every situation, and to walk by faith, which is confidence. It's not blind faith. I don't like the term blind faith. Oh, just walking blindly by faith. Really? Well, apparently Hebrews 11, or uh, yeah, Hebrews 11, 1 says, faith is a substance and an evidence. And I define substance as something that's tangible and evidence as it's proven. Now, it doesn't mean I always know where I'm going to go. And it does mean that I trust God day by day. And it doesn't mean I don't have everything figured out. But it does mean I can walk confidently to a promised land. And even when I get to the River Jordan and it's in flood stage, God said I'm going on the other side. So somehow he's going to part it or stop up the river. Instead of saying, man, God brought me all this way. And now the river's at flood stage. I'm never going to make it. Oh, and there's lions in the thickets all around. I have confidence in what God has said and who he is and who I am. And I know that ultimately where we're going is eternity. And I know that eternity starts right now. And I know that my life's not my own. And I know that God's got a purpose. And I know I'm a son because I've been rescued out of so much dysfunction. I've been brought from the lowest. I've gone from the prison to the palace, literally. That's why you must be careful by what you see. You got to learn to perceive with your mind as I. John 16, 33, Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. Peace is only found in him. In this world, you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I've overcome the world. Tribulation means trouble, high pressure, oppression, affliction, distress, and stress. So stressed out because of high pressure. And for most men, it comes down to money. And I'm guilty too. But I've learned over time that stress is not a fruit of the spirit. 
God had his way to finally teach me that worry and stress will get me nowhere. More often than not, the fears that I think are going to happen never happen. Right? And then I realized that fear is a spirit. God has not given you a spirit of fear, which is also known as be timid, be less intense. You're not going to make it. The devil's too strong. He's too powerful. Your circumstances are going to kill you. It's timidity versus intensity. Timidity is the opposite of I'm on fire and aggressive and I'll be militant. And I'll do it with incredible love because love has no hooks. Uh, You don't have to come back to this church. You don't even have to give your money. I'm going to love you for who you are, the way you are, whether you give or come back or not. Now, if you come back, I get to be in greater relationship with you because I can reach out and touch somebody. And then we can lean on each other. And then we get in the trenches together. And then we become an army. So if people don't stay here, they should go somewhere that they can become an army and find somebody to lean on. Because that's what family does. It's really all about family. I love my son no matter what he does. And he does some pretty quirky things. He's five. And he thinks he can run the world. And he's, you know, can be defiant and adamant to do it his way and But no matter what he does, and even when he doesn't do the things that I think he should do, do I still love him and forgive him just the same? You bet. Is my love for him measured and based on what he does? Absolutely not. That's why real family defines you by who you are, not what you do. Your value is not based on how how well you served. Your value is not based on how great of a deliverance minister you are. Oh, man, you can sing. I need you. Your value is based on you as a son because I love you and I care about you. And if you never gave anything back, I love you just the same. That's what real agape love is. But we're divided with factions because we want recognition. We have schisms in the church, which is to be rent or split. And we're divided in opposition with one another, which is apostasy. Apostasy means, well, I don't believe there's a hell. You do. I can't agree with you. Apostasy is, you know what, that pastor's jacked up, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and all that tongue stuff and devil, casting out devils and all that stuff, that's not for today. So I'm divided. So I gather a group to myself and I become cancerous by grouping people to myself because I didn't like what that person did. And now what happens, I become divided, which is called a faction or an apostasy. And the root of it, 1 Corinthians 11, is recognition. I want to be seen. Man, I want to be known. I got man, I got to get on the airwaves. I got to promote myself. Why don't you recognize me? You didn't see what I did last week? You didn't see me clean those bathrooms? You didn't see me scrub those floors? You didn't see me hang that tarp? You didn't see me fill in the blank? No, I didn't. But Jesus did. And your values in who you are as a son or a daughter, not in how well you served. Just be free today. Just be free. Because this flips our Western Americanized church culture. But it also, the other extreme is is some of us do nothing. And we eat, 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 eat and soak up and we become lazy, fat Christians. And we're consumer Christians instead of being the army. We are an audience instead of an army. And we want the next latest podcast and worship album and feed, 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 feed. And we're just, we're, we're on fire Christians, but we don't reproduce. And I love Jesus so much, but the last time I opened my mouth, I just actually can't remember. 
flying home from Myrtle Beach last week, there were incredible storms that were hitting in Dallas. And if any of you know, flying through Dallas and a storm never mixes good and delays are about inevitable. And so I get to my flight to come home Sunday night and I'm, uh, the, the plane's delayed an hour because the crew couldn't make it because the storm's somewhere else. The crew comes, we get on the plane, I sit for another hour, and then at the two and a half hour mark, they cancel the flight because the storm's hitting right then. So I get off the plane and they bump me to the 10.30 flight. I get off at nine, they bump me to the 10.30 flight. Then that flight gets moved to 11.30 and then that flight gets moved to 12.30. And so while I'm waiting for my flight, the gates keep changing. I go from gate 15 to gate four five times before finally I settle at gate 12. Now it was weird. This whole trip for me was weird. I could, I'm telling you, strange stuff's been happening to me, but like cool spiritual strange stuff lately. And what the Lord showed me is I'm always doing the supernatural. You just don't see it because we're not looking because we're consumed with our lives and ourselves. And our justices. And so I finally settled at the Shreveport gate. That's where Brad and Susan are moving to. They're planning a church there. And I'm like, this is so strange. I'm taking pictures, sending it to Amber. For me, it was a big deal. I mean, some of you are like, so what? It was happenstance. No, it wasn't for me. And I'm paying attention. I, and the Lord's like, don't, get, don't watch a movie. I want you to pay attention because I'm doing something. So I'm looking around. When I first got to Dallas, a couple from Shreveport who was, the, the husband was an admiral for a nuclear aircraft carrier in the Air Force. And when I was in Myrtle Beach the last time, God used me to pray with him and he got baptized in the Holy Spirit. When I got to Myrtle Beach, I asked Brad, I said, Brad, how's Tom doing? He goes, man, he's doing great. He's flamed on. He's going to lead with us. I get to Dallas at the end of the trip, and I'm sitting there on a call with my kids FaceTiming, and guess who walks up behind me? Tom and his wife, and they're going to Shreveport. So three hours later, I get stuck at the Shreveport gate thinking they're going to be there. I'm just paying attention. They're not there. At 1130, Shreveport flight takes off. Storms roll in fierce and strong with tornadoes, and they cancel my flight at 1230. So I'm stuck in Dallas at 1230 at night. You do not want to be stuck in storms in Dallas at 1230 at night because, for one, all the ho- none of the hotels are real close. They're all sold out. And then the airline wasn't going to give me a hotel because it was weather-related. So I'm like, I'm going to drive it. And then Fabian calls me and says, hey, I hear you're stuck in Dallas. Don't try to drive home at 1 o'clock in the morning. Well, I didn't care. I was going to try it anyway. <laughs> so I call Hertz. And they're like, oh, yeah, we got a car for you. It'll be uh, one way right now, $775. Like, yeah, I don't think so. So I'm like, well, I got to get to a hotel somewhere, and they're all going to be sold out right around me, so there won't be any shuttles, so I need a car. So I call Hertz back. I'm like, hey, how about if I just get a car, you know, for less than 24 hours, and I'll drive to a hotel and whatever. So, yeah, we have a car for you. It'll be $275. And then I had my epiphany. I knew what I was supposed to do. Call an Uber. (laughs) Now, for those of you that are visiting and wondering why that's funny, 
is I have had more encounters than an Uber, and I told the Lord a long time ago I would witness to every single Uber driver. Only one time did I not witness to an Uber driver. You can ask my wife. I was dying in the backseat sick, puking my guts out from food poisoning in New Jersey on our way to Israel. But every other time, no matter how I felt, no matter what they wanted to hear or not, I was going to talk to them about Jesus. So I was like, well, I guess this whole thing was all about my Uber driver. Two canceled flights delayed, there's got to be a reason. So I dial in an Uber, and he's like, the message comes back, I'll be there in an hour, because there's heavy storms and, you know, nobody can get anywhere. So he, sh- so I look at his profile on Uber, and he's a African man, I believe his name was Victor from Africa, and uh I was like, okay, Lord, what do you want to say to this guy? So God gives me a download for him. So here he comes, pouring rain, lightning everywhere. There was a big tornado that hit in Dallas. That's the night I was there, just a few miles from where I ultimately was staying. He picks me up, and he's this stoic African man from Zimbabwe. I'm like, how are you? He goes, good. And he doesn't have anything to say. You've been... been, now, it's pouring rain outside, so what am I really going to say? You've been having a good day. I mean, it's tornadoes and, and lightning everywhere, and it's like he's trying to just keep the car on the road, and I'm sitting there wanting to talk to him. And so I looked at him, and I said, hey, bro, God must really love you to have canceled two of my flights and put me in this car with you. So I got something to say. And he's, okay. And I said, What happened to the plan? You and God had an agreement. You made an agreement with the Lord when you came to the United States. You came here with a purpose and now you're sidetracked. What happened to the plan? And he looks at me with his eyes get this big and he goes, amazing, amazing, amazing. How did you know that? How did you know that? I said, the Lord told me, what's your story? And then he opened right up. He goes, when I moved here from Zimbabwe, I I moved to partner with a church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I preached for many, many years. I went to become a preacher, and I went to Bible school, and I was a preacher, and then I got hurt by the pastor. My wife and my kids left me. They went back to Zimbabwe, and I couldn't take it anymore, so I moved to Dallas to become an Uber driver. I said, dude, God is God has shown up in your car right now. And the lightning flashed all around in the sky. And I was like, whew, our hair was standing on end. I was like an angelic being flying right out of heaven. My point in telling you that story is, is if you'll pay attention, no matter what adversity and situation that you find yourself in, God will use you mightily and reveal himself to you. And I get it because as a pastor and even in my, in my background, I've seen and experienced a lot of dysfunction from abuse to neglect. I've seen people in their childhoods extremely abused, raped, and the worst of the worst situations. But what I know is no matter what you've been through in your past or what you're facing right now, God can use it as an incredible testimony for your future. Because he takes your brokenness, flips it, and makes it a testimony for someone else's brokenness. 
And if you won't become weak and small and shrink back and see yourself as a grasshopper and instead see yourself as the real spiritual giant in the land, you'll slay giants. And so thank God David with Goliath didn't see himself as small. Thank God the spy, the, that Joseph and Caleb did not see themselves as the other 10 saw themselves, but instead they said, those big giants, it's an easy thing. We can take the promised land. But the rest saw themselves as grasshoppers. Thank God that Daniel, when he was told he could not pray to anybody but the king, bowed down three times in the public's eye and didn't shrink back and took what it, whatever his consequence would be, which was a lion's den, and then the lion's den, which would have been his enemy to eat him, became his friends. I could just see him making the lion a pillow. Our response to incredible tribulation, bring that 1633 back up, should be what? It should be, be of good cheer. Yeah! Woo, I'm going to worship. Everything's falling around around me. Thank you, Jesus, for the greatness of who you are. I'm fired up because of what you said and the peace that you give me. And so when you see me smiling and worship, I'm not like nice, pretentious, worshiping guy. I'm like broken, messed up, got jacked up things and facing adversity. So I worship a little bit more because I'm a little bit more desperate when the hardship comes. I'm actually a little bit more louder in adversity. I'm a little bit more intense when the enemy's trying to come against me. Because I know who I am and I've overcome a lot already. So instead of fighting the way the world fights, I fight the way Jesus fought. That's with brokenness and humility and confidence in my identity. And I have the prophetic voice of God. And if I open my mouth prophetically, the, the, literally the lies of the devil around my life will be defeated. Because that's how the Lord defeats the enemy. With his breath and his word. He created everything by what he spoke. And if you read Isaiah 11, it literally says he'll strike the earth with the rod. With the breath of his mouth, he will defeat his enemies. And if you will just open up your mouth with a full-grown Jesus living inside of you, you will prophesy and declare to your situation and circumstance, instead of being some weak, sissy Christian with no power, no life, woe is me, I'm depressed, I love Jesus, but I'm really a hunchback, lemon-sucking, weak Christian. I'm saying it like it is because I love you. If you could see how I see you. We're mopey and we're glum and we're just barely making it through life. And I just hope I can get that next bill paid. And the pressure and the responsibility and my work and my jobs and my kids and my wife and my life. And all the stuff that's going on around me, it's all killing me. Yes, it will kill you. If you let it. Love it, lose it. Hate it, find it. That's why we understand that Jesus spoke things to us so that when tribulation comes, I'll be more fired up. Good cheer. In Pastor David's language is, I'm so much more radically on fire in the midst of the adversity. Some of us are so apathetic about the world around us and what's happening in the White House and with the president and political lines and it's chaos and turmoil and wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and all of those things that are coming and the enemy just wants to deceive you in a minute, Matthew 24, and they want to get you sidetracked from who you are and who's coming. And God says, stay more fired up in the midst of it all and get your eyes off your circumstance and get your eyes on him. Right? There's your scripture. 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in you 
than he who's in the world, which also means any circumstance that's in the world. And when Jesus said to take heart, I've overcome the world, here's what that means. Whatever your hardship is right now, Jesus has overcome it. No, that's what it means to me. You say, well, Jesus, Jesus didn't jump into sin like I did and have an affair or cheat and didn't get backstabbed the way that I did. Uh, no, yes, he did. And he didn't sin. He was sinless. But anything in this world, he overcame it. Take heart, for I've overcome the world. Which means that he just handled it differently than we did. That's what that means. So you're trying to compare your situation to his. He responded right and overcame it. But he also understands and can sympathize. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, says that we have a high priest that can sympathize with our weakness because he also has, he's compassionate, he's caring because he's overcome it himself. So whatever you're going through, he's overcame it. And where is he? Where does he live? Inside of me. And if you're not careful, you'll be just like the Baal worshipers and the Ashereth worshipers on Mount Carmel with Elijah. And you'll cut yourself by trying to worship more, pray more, dance more, perform more for God. And then if you do, he'll come. When the truth is, where is he? And we don't even realize we do it. And then we try to measure up as religious Pharisees and Christian Pharisees and Sadducees. And we think we please God by our nice religious duty. And we say, God, come, please, God, I need you. I can just see the Lord looking at you face to face going, I'm right here. What, what do you mean? I'm in you. Now, is there a transcendent component of the Lord's nature? Yes. The weight of his glory, the tangible presence of God. It, 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 you know when, like, man, the presence of God has shown up. But more often than not, it's the presence of God that rose up instead of showed up. You say, oh, that's arrogant and haughty. No, it's not. I know who's in me. And I know the scripture. Greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. Deuteronomy 8.18, you shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant with you which he swore to you, to your fathers, as it is this day. Let me, let me paraphrase this for you. This scripture literally means that God gives you the power to be strong and to advance and to accomplish. Because that word wealth is the same word for strength. And what it means literally is, is that a wealthy person is full of knowledge and wisdom and rest and peace and confidence in the headship and lordship of Christ. Hence, I can be prosperous in everything that I do. And it's not just defined by my great sales at my coffee shop or how much money you made or your career or any of those things. It defined, it's defined by who you have become. He gives you the great power to become. That's what that really means. He gives you power to be strong, which in turn creates wealth in various fashions. It's the opposite of being small in your strength. So I'll tell you this, this is awesome what I'm about to show you. Jeremiah experienced some of the greatest oppression of any Old Testament prophet that there was. Maybe of anybody that's ever lived. This guy was called to prophesy against the king of Judah and the king of Babylon. And the prophecies were not like 1 Corinthians 12 prophecies. They weren't like comfort, exhortation, and edification. It was, you will be crushed. You will die, captivity, you're in sin. It's every bad thing that a prophet would ever have to prophesy. 
Now, there was always repentance and a component of turning from wicked ways, but they would be obstinate and stubborn. He'd be thrown in prison, lied about, tortured. All kinds of horrible things would come against him. That's why when somebody comes to me and says, ah, I'm a modern-day Jeremiah, I'm like, dude, no. That's not going to work well for you. <laughs> and so Jeremiah is just like, at his wit's end with what's happening in his nation. He's like, my nation has gotten more wicked. I'll just show it to you. It's in Jeremiah 12. So let's read it. Starting at verse four. How long will the land mourn? And the herbs of every field wither. The beasts and the birds are consumed. The wickedness of those who dwell there because of the wickedness of those who dwell there. And because they said, the Lord does not see our final end. If you don't believe the Lord sees your final end and have an understanding of eternity, if you don't believe that, you won't believe he's actively involved in your life now. If you don't care about that, you don't care about the now. And what was happening was the nation was full of wickedness. The herb of the field was withering. It wasn't a fruitful land. People were oppressed. And then the people had the, the gall to say, God's not involved in my life. And that's the lie of agnosticism, is that there may be a God, but he's, we don't really know, and he's not really involved. And then the real lie leads to atheism, is that God's not actually, doesn't really exist, and he doesn't see anything. He can't see, which would make him like any other idol, which is dumb. That's what idolatry means. It means can't hear, can't see, and is dumb. Can't talk. And that's what was happening in the nation. So look at the Lord's response to this in verse 5. If you've run with footmen and they have worried you or wore you out, how will you contend with horses? And if in the land of peace in which you've trusted, they have worried you, how will you survive or do in the floodplain of the Jordan? Now, let me help you understand this scripture. One of the greatest adversaries in the beginning of Jeremiah's life was his own family, his own immediate community. People thought he was nuts. People thought he was crazy. And he had to overcome persecution in the smaller forms because what he was about to face in the larger forms was going to be so much bigger. And it's like, you can't handle a Facebook slander, but you want to go stand before the mayor. You can't handle your own family coming against you, but you're called to take a nation. This is the premise. If you can't run with the footman in face-to-face -face battle and combat, how are you going to be able to handle chariots and horses and much bigger armies? Because I've called you to so much more. That's why he's in the overcoming. So you learn through trials and testing and tribulation, which makes you stronger because you're called to sit before kings. That's the premise. The horses represent incredible power and strength in the Bible. One horse can pull up to 2,500 pounds. That's where you get the, the term horse power. Horses are indicative of mighty nations and mighty armies and mighty fortresses and kings. And the Lord says, you can't even handle hand-to-hand -hand combat and foot soldiers and the immediate struggle of your life. Yet, how are you going to handle it when I promote you? So what God does is he uses the small battles with the foot soldiers to prepare you for the big battles with the nations. And then he goes on to say, if in the land of peace you're growing weary... You think it's hard here, imagine what it would be like to live in China. And we know people that do. The level of, per you will go to prison. You will, some people will die. You will die in North Korea if you have a Bible. 
And it's like, oh, life is so hard in the land of peace. Think about it. So in the land of peace you're wore out, what happens when you're in the floodplain of Jordan? You know what the floodplain of Jordan represents? First of all, the floodplain represents a lot of thickets. And in the thickets hides lions. Or an adversary out to kill you. And he's saying, man, you're struggling in a land of peace by some opposition. Imagine when the going gets really tough and you're in the floodplain of Jordan, which means a flood could wipe me out and there's an enemy on all sides. That's what that means. So what we learn to do is grow strong with the foot soldiers so we can run with the horses. What it means is in the land of peace, we don't let the little trials and tribulations and adversity hold us back. Instead, what it means is we're confident and we're bold so that when God takes us to the floodplain of the Jordan, which means suffering, the floodplain of suffering on the other side is a promise. You got to see that. Oh, I'm in the floodplain of suffering. Well, just across the other side is the promised land. Oh, God, could you just see a couple million Israelites? Man, God brought us all this way. Oh, we're never going to make it across the Jordan. It's that supernatural flood stage. But confidence says, I'm going to put my toe in that river, and I don't know what's going to happen, but all I know is God said, put your toe in the river. So I'm putting my toe in the river, and bam, as soon as I put my toe in the river, it was stopped up at the headwaters. And you're looking at a flood in front of you and incredible opposition and hardship, and God says, put your toe in the river, not retreat. It's like, you know, from kittens to lions, from Facebook to the White House. Your family, your friends, religious leaders, they'll persecute you. But when you can learn to handle that, you can stand in front of kings and nations. When you overcome the small, you can face the big. When you learn how to dwell in the land of peace, he'll take you to the floodplain of the Jordan. First Peter 5.8 says to be sober and vigilant. Why? Because there's an adversary that roams around like a roar, a roaring lion. But guess what he is? He's like, he's not. And he may roar, but instead of a roar, I hear meow. Here, kitty, 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 kitty. Because he's really a defeated foe. Because I know a lion. I know a much bigger lion than that lion. Shoot, I know the real lion. And he's in me. And you don't want me to roar. Because he's the lion of the tribe. The tribe of worship. The tribe of praise. The tribe of trust. The tribe of surrender all. And I'll leave you with this. The enemy wants you to grow weary and to faint in the fight. He wants you to be a good, he wants you to try to be a good person. Just go through the motions and be nice, but good will kill you. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil leads to death. Good is in the tree. And you think if you're good enough and measure up, that pleases God and it doesn't. God wants you to be spiritual. Does he want you to do good? Yes. He wants you to do good. That's why Galatians 6, 9 says, don't grow weary while doing good. For in due season, you're going to reap. So I got a promises coming. Lots of promises. 
because I'm, there's times I felt weary, but I'm getting stronger as the years go by because I'm knowing him more and who I am. But really, that was always there. I'm just discovering it now. So I'm not growing weary in well-doing, while doing good, because I know I'm reaping a great harvest. I've already reaped a great harvest. That's the message in my wife's life. Therefore, as you have the opportunity, do we have an opportunity? Yes, we do. Let us do good to all, to everybody, but especially to who? That's why the devil will work to get you isolated and say, I don't need the church. Those crazy Christians and those people and all they've done is ever hurt me and kick me while I'm down or they're just, yeah, God does need you because it's not going to change until we're doing it together as a family. Proverbs twenty-one twenty-nine: a wicked man hardens his face, but as for the upright, he establishes, God establishes his way. There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. The horse is prepared for the day of battle. But deliver it. Oh, man, I love this scripture. Know this scripture. Oh, the horse is prepared for, a day, for the day of battle. Are you in the day of battle today? Deliverance comes from the Lord. This word deliverance is literally Yeshua in the Old Testament. It's the name of Jesus. Deliverance comes. Oh, you in a battle? Is there an army? Are there horses prepared for the day of battle? And they're marching and they're charging and they sound really loud. And you think you're going to die. But deliverance comes from the Lord. Isn't that so powerful? Psalm 20, verse 7. What are you trusting in? Your stuff? Because it, it says chariots and horses here. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. What might your chariots and horses be? My own talents and gifts and abilities, my stuff. I don't know. What does our chariots and horses look like? And to me, it looks like trusting in anything that's opposite of him. No word in the scripture says, and you shall be the provider. Do I, do I work hard for my family? Yes. Is it biblical that I work hard and learn to work? Yes. But at the same time, my wife can work and make money too, because that's what the virtuous woman did in Proverbs 31. And the point is, who is the ultimate provider? Because some trust in chariots and some in horses, but I will remember the name Yeshua, deliverance comes from the Lord, the Lord our God. The horse is prepared for the day of battle. And guess what? That, those horses want to make you feel less than and adverse. But God says, guess what? I've called you to actually outrun horses. I've called you to be stronger than a thousand pound horse. I've given you more horsepower than a thousand horses. That's what the Holy Spirit is in us. And so this morning, if you have been overcome in the battle, depression, anxiety, fear, worry, because you know what? Sometimes your strength does become small, doesn't it? One of the greatest things that the Lord does is he rescues. He fixes broken. And if you bombed it, blew it, messed it up, well, join the club. But God in his mercy and his kindness rescues. And if the horses have trampled you underfoot, well, God will deliver you because he made a promise. So I want to ask you all to stand this afternoon.